Welcome to episode 72 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, author of What, When, Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Jen Stevens, author of Delay, Don't Deny, Living an Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and jenstevens.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice or treatment. So, pour yourself a cup of black coffee, a mug of tea, or even a glass of wine, if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumer consumers from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. 
The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 72 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hi, everybody. And Jen, this is a loaded question. (laughs) How are things with you? Well, I have had the most interesting week of my probably entire life, and I have learned so much this week that I had no idea about, (laughs) and it all has to do with my book, Delay, Don't Deny. And so what happened with Delay, Don't Deny? It's absolutely nuts, and it's still ongoing, but we're, we're finally starting to get resolution. Of course, by the time this episode airs, we may have complete resolution, but I'm going to give a little backstory to this. Well, let me tell it another way. This is, I'm going to tell it exactly like how it played out in my head. <laughs> After we finished recording the podcast last week, I checked my messages, and I had a message from another author that I didn't know. And he said, hey, heads up, I have found a certain seller, a third-party seller on Amazon selling a paperback of my book. But it is not my authentic book. It's in a different font. And this same exact seller has your book listed too. So you may want to order one and see if it's the real book or if it's in a different font. And I was like, what? (laughs) So that started me down the rabbit hole of what is going on. So I ordered one. And then I, I, um, of course, you know, it doesn't come in right away. So I was like, well, I can't wait to see this. So I started exploring. And I noticed some things on Amazon that I didn't know before. Do you know what the Amazon buy box is and why that's important? The button that you automatically would click if you're buying it. Right. That's called the buy box. And when you click add to cart, you probably don't pay attention to what the buy box says. You look at the price. You look at whether it's Amazon Prime, but you just click add to cart. Well, I didn't know that there was a change in the way the buy box worked at some point in 2017. And so I went to look at the listing for Delay Don't Deny, and I noticed that right there where it usually says ships from and sold by Amazon, it had another company listed for my book. (laughs) My my book listing right there, it said sold by blank and fulfilled by Amazon. So I was like, wait a minute. Why is my book being sold by somebody else? Because I'm published through CreateSpace, which is an Amazon company. So my book should be sold by Amazon. Why is somebody else selling it? So that started me down the whole rabbit hole of what's going on here. And um, I realized, a little backstory here, back in about April, something really strange happened with the paperback sales of Delay Don't Deny. The sales had always been really strong, and I'd sold more paperbacks than Kindles. And all of a sudden, in April, that dropped off, like, dramatically. I'm like, oh, my gosh, my sales are low. What's happening? This is weird. But the Kindle sales never slowed down. So um, I remembered what they told me at CreateSpace, which is an Amazon 
it, it's an Amazon company. So it's all it's all under Amazon's umbrella. They told me back in the fall when I had a question about royalties and publishing and when when they would show up in the report that sometimes they printed through something called expanded distribution and so it would take 30 to 60 or to 90 days for royalties to show up. So I was like, well, that must be what's happening because Kindle's still going well. I'll just be patient. I'll wait, you know, next month these they'll show up, the sales will pick back up. Well, they never did. And then in early August, I finally realized something was wrong because I mean, I was selling like so few paperback copies compared to the Kindle and it was really, you know, it had suddenly dropped off. I sent them a message about it, an email, and they were like, oh, no, nothing's wrong. Your sales are just down. Well, as soon as the, oh, I also ordered another copy that same day that I ordered the one that I suspected as, as not being real, by the way. And um, I ordered another one from the company that was featured in the buy box that was not Amazon. So this was two separate third-party sellers I ordered a copy of Delay, Don't Deny from. Well, they both arrived in the same shipment because they were fulfilled by Amazon. And I opened them up, and Melanie, it was, like, shocking. I didn't know you ordered two. Was one the original? No, both were fake. Were they both the same fake one? Yes. They both came from third-party sellers. And they were right there in the buy box, sold by blank and fulfilled by Amazon. And I got those books in my hand in the same exact shipment. And I opened them up. They were in a different font. There were three typos on the back cover, <laughs> which I was like, oh, my Lord, this is so embarrassing. Because, like, it was missing the period at the end of a sentence. And it had a lowercase I instead of a capital I. Like, in, like, like when I was talking about myself, I, it was a lowercase I. And then it was missing the word I in another sentence. And all those things were not errors on the original Delay, Don't Deny, because I have copies of those. So I compared them. I and mean, I'm like, look at this. And as my husband and I started examining the fake copy, there were other errors too. Not to mention, like I said, the whole thing is in a different font. But the print quality is different. The paper is different. The um, There are some formatting differences here and there. Like italics when... They used italics when I didn't use italics. And here's the funniest difference of all. This one is hilarious. They actually corrected one of my typos. <laughs> That's really funny. I mean, it's, it's, it is funny. So <laughs> anyway, um, I had a really hard time getting someone to talk to me, you know, like who handles this in Amazon, who handles this at CreateSpace. And finally yesterday, um, I had a great conversation with someone on the ex- executive team at CreateSpace, and they are investigating this fully. And um, I don't want any readers to worry. Like, I don't want you to do anything. I'm going to tell you what to do once I figure it out, because I believe that the majority of the paperbacks sold between April and August are from this batch of fake books, because that matches exactly when my dip happened. And, you know, I've got access to so many readers. Like, we've got over 100,000 members in the the combined Facebook groups. And um, loads and loads and loads of readers are like, oh, my gosh, mine's the fake one. It's got the lowercase i. It's got the different font. Now, one thing about the lowercase i, some of them don't have the lowercase i, but there's, like, a certain batch number inside that they all have. Apparently, the the fake bookmakers corrected the lowercase i at one point. So, um the lowercase i is not your only the only thing you can go by but the font is different in all of these all of these books so don't if you're a reader of delay don't deny don't worry about having to do anything i'm going to, i'm asking amazon what i'd like for them to do 
is to identify who ordered from these certain third-party sellers. And I would like Amazon to just automatically make sure everyone who ordered the book from those sellers gets the real one because people were not ordering a fake book. They were trying to order the real book. And so that's what I hope that they get. Um, And, you know, I've talked before on the podcast how I don't read reviews, but my husband does. So he's been reading the Delay Don't Deny reviews and some of the ones talk about the low quality of the photos. And I'm like, well, guess I know which version they got because the fake version photos look terrible. I mean, it's just, it's just awful um, to think that this could happen. Are you commenting on those reviews? You can tell them at least that it's a fake version. Well, I would really like Amazon to look at the reviews and if any talk about like, Oh, to take them down. Yeah. I would like Amazon to do that. I saw I've mentioned that to them as well, because I don't think that that's, you know, really a fair review because it's a review of a fake book. So anyway, readers, you don't have to do anything. Don't worry about your book. Don't send me emails about, is my book real? Is my book fake? Um, I'm probably going to put up a blog post about this when it's all said and done. And I'm really looking forward to, this is my hope that I'll be able to talk about what a hero Amazon has been through this whole process with their resolution. Of course, I don't know how it's going to end because it hasn't happened yet, but I'm going to share the whole thing on a blog post and, um, if there is anything readers need to do, I'll have that in there. But for now, I don't think there's anything readers need to do. But in the meantime, Amazon's investigating. And if you order a copy of Delay, Don't Deny, at this point, it should be fine because they are taking steps to make sure they're not shipping out those fake ones anymore. And the third-party sellers that were selling them have been removed. Um, but I learned something very important about that buy box. Do you know how, how that works, Melanie, from, from the listings and what the change was in 2017? Have you read anything about it? No, I don't. See, I had no idea. I had no idea that Amazon changed. I never paid attention to – if I was buying something, like, like for example, we, we both take Doctor's Best Serapeptase, right? We go to Amazon, we, we look at it, and we click Add to Cart, and we buy it because we've bought it. 10 times before. We don't even think about where that's coming from. So interestingly, after um, this all happened and I understood how the buy box works, I paid attention. I needed to actually get some more serapeptase. So I went to Amazon and I looked at the buy box. And right there where it says add to cart, it said sold by blank, fulfilled by Amazon. And I'm like, hmm, I don't know what that, that company is that's selling this to me. It's not coming from Amazon like I thought. I thought when I bought something, especially if it was Amazon Prime, I thought everything Amazon Prime came from Amazon. Didn't you think that? I mean, I guess I automatically assumed that. I did know that there was different sellers, though, sometimes. I hadn't really thought about it. Well, apparently, it, it, it can just vary who's selling it from day to day. So there were, like, all these different sellers selling serapeptase in that same listing. So you know how underneath it says blank used and new from, and then it'll have a price. Right. And then there's all the other options. Yes. That is what I clicked on. And then I saw all the different sellers of serapeptase and it was like, I don't recognize any of these companies. There was one that I'm familiar with that was Swanson's, I think. And they're a company that I'm, they've been around for a long, long time and they sell, um, they sell supplements. I'm like, all right, here's one I recognize. So I made sure to buy it from that company that I recognized instead of the one that showed up in the buy box. Now, here's what's interesting. 
it costs more from them and it was not Amazon Prime. But I am no longer going to just blindly buy what shows up in that buy box if I don't know who that seller is because that is how all of my readers ended up with the fake version. Amazon has an algorithm that they use and it's called winning the buy box and it's based on whoever has the best quote deal or something whoever has the best combination of a deal gets to be featured in the buy box and sometimes that's Amazon and sometimes it isn't so if it's not Amazon then if you click add to cart you're buying from whoever that is in the buy box and it might be somebody awesome because there are a ton of great third-party sellers on Amazon who are selling legitimate products and that is how they make their living but as well as I found out this week there are also some unscrupulous people selling items through the buy box. So um, I suggest for all of my books and Melanie's books and um, things like that, you should not buy those from a third-party seller. You should buy them from Amazon, sold and shipped by Amazon. Because I actually read an article, Melanie, this would interest you, books that are Traditionally published, you might think, well, this couldn't happen to those books, right? Like yours, What When Wine is traditionally published. Right. So you feel like like it couldn't happen. Well, I read an article when I was learning about this that actually talked about how traditional published books are having this problem too because third-party companies are selling – like somebody could be selling What When Wine in the buy box from a third-party company, and that third-party company did not get those books from your publisher. They could be fake copies. Do you think, though, that it's easier for them to create pirated copies of the self-published books versus... You know what? I would actually hope it would be harder for them to do that because Amazon is the publishing company. So Amazon should have records of how many they're paying a royalty for since I published through them, and they should know how many they have authorized to be printed. So the third-party companies should have ex- had gotten the books from my publisher, which is Amazon. So if they're selling thousands more copies than they have paid royalties on, you would think that they would know that. (laughs) Well, I mean, as far as like creating the actual book. No, because I I actually, people told me they're like, well, oh, they scan them in. People scan these books in and they have this capturing software and it scans them. And, you know, that makes sense. I feel like I would probably just, if I was a pirate or which I'm not, I would probably just like go to a copier. I'd copy it. But the types of errors that were in my book, I can't imagine being from scanning. I think someone retyped the book. Yeah, because my mom was like, they scanned it because I told her the story. And I was like, well, no, they didn't scan it because they're typos. So they had to have retyped it. Exactly. Or it wouldn't be different. So anyway, I've learned a very important lesson. And so listeners, for all products, and I've heard this is not just happening with books. Like, for example, let's say I was a hammer maker. I don't know. I'm just making that up. I made hammers. And so I had a listing on Amazon for my handcrafted hammers because I craft my hammers at home. I'm a good hammer maker. I make them from scratch. I sell them on Amazon. I mean, I guess you don't make them from scratch, but, you know, whatever. I make my hammers. And so anybody could then sell my same hammer And if they call it the exact same thing as mine and say it's my brand hammer, they could win the buy box on my handcrafted hammer. And the one they're selling is not handcrafted by me, and it's a fake. So whenever you're trying to buy a product on Amazon, pay attention to who it says it's sold and shipped by. And if you don't recognize that name, go down to the other new offerings. And when in doubt, pick Amazon because Amazon 
you're going to be able to contact Amazon. You know who they are. You know, you know where Amazon is. But if it's some third-party seller that is not legitimate, like was happening with my books, you don't know how to contact them. You don't know who they are. You don't know what they're sending you. And um, everyone who's read Delay, Don't Deny, if you got the one with the... (laughs) With the bad back cover and the the weird typos, I am so sorry. <laughs> That's almost the worst part. I mean, almost. <laughs> that would be the worst part for me, I think. Cause just because it's like you want to say, this is not me. I didn't make this mistake. I do know how to put a period at the end of the sentence. Yeah, and I do know how to capitalize the word I. And I do. <laughs> anyway, so stay tuned. I'll keep everybody posted. And like I said, my goal is to be able to say what a hero Amazon was through this whole situation. And um, the way they were on the phone yesterday was phenomenal. So they're taking it seriously. And I, I would hope anybody else could avoid this type of issue. But it just we have to be careful with our buying behavior on Amazon because, you know, we don't want criminals to to win ever. Yeah, that's really crazy. The only thing similar similar that it reminds me of is – like a few months ago, I always ordered my favorite probiotic, which was Prescriptisys, like a soil-based yeah. probiotic. And then there was a whole crazy debate with that. There was like the original distributor, but then there was also the original producer of the probiotic, and they weren't the same company. Right. And one of the companies was selling it on Amazon under a new label but as the same product but it wasn't the same product but then there was like a whole fight about who actually made the product in the first place like the distributor or the producer it was like this crazy thing and yeah that's the only time I've actually got sort of involved like I was like commenting saying that I didn't think it was the real one I'd actually now now I don't even know and that's the thing about supplements for example you know, with the serapeptase, people who are, you know, you go, if you go to the link, for example, you and I each have links. I have one on jenstevens.com favorite things. You've got a link to it on the, um, on the, our favorite things on, um, things, stuff we like on intermittent fasting podcast. If someone clicks the link that we have on our pages and it takes them to buy serapeptase, they think, oh, I got this link from Jen and Melanie. It's good. But the buy box might be sold by, I make fake products.com and you know, fulfilled by Amazon and you're not really getting serapeptase when you buy that. And, you know, Amazon never would knowingly sell a fake item. But the problem is they don't know. Amazon doesn't know until we tell them. They had no idea that somebody was selling a fake book through my, my book page since, like I said, April, because that's when my sales got weird. And um, and my readers, for example, the people who have the fake ones, it was all between April and um, August. Those were when the fake ones went out. I will say one thing, though. This happened yesterday. I had a random supplement that somebody actually given me. Yeah. Unopened, completely new, but it cost like $50 on Amazon. So I was like, oh, I'll resell it because you know how you can resell things as – like we can re- resell things. We would become those other sellers. <laughs> right, right. I tried to list it though. And it said that I had to have permission from the, I think for supplements, I think it's more tricky because it said I had to have permission from the supplement company that originally made it. So I think for, with a lot of the actual brands that are respected, 
that it might be a little bit more difficult on the supplement side of things. Maybe. I don't know. But this just happened yesterday. So, yes. Drama. Intense drama. <laughs> Craziness. It was – I mean, I was not sleeping. Oh, and, and here's here's the other funny part of the story that's not really funny. Um, it kind of ties into something that I said on the last podcast. You know, we were talking about supplements. And um, I said – I don't take a lot of supplements, but I did just start to take one for restless legs called methylfolate that I had just ordered. And because my friend said, well, that really helped my restless legs. So I didn't research it. I just said, oh, it helped yours. I'll try it too. I ordered it without researching it. And throughout this whole, you know, piracy thing going on, I could not eat. I could hardly sleep. I was waking up all night long. I felt sick to my stomach. I was super anxious. It was just so stressful. Then as I'm starting to figure it all out, I still kept feeling anxious and terrible and awful and just not like myself. So I'm like, huh, I just started taking that new supplement. Let me research that a little bit. Guess what the symptoms are (laughs) of taking that supplement if it's not one that works for you. The symptoms of overmethylation? Yes, (laughs) they are. Anxiety, insomnia. I mean, it is crazy. I was getting no sleep. I I was super anxious. So I stopped taking it. So I wish I'd have researched it ahead of time. This is a cautionary tale for listeners. Don't ever take a supplement. And this is I'm giving this lesson to myself too, just because your friend says it helped them with a problem. Because if you have um how do you pronounce it? Do you just say M T H F R? Do you just say the letters? Mm-hmm, the M T H F R mutation. If you have the MTHFR polymorphism, the mutation, your body does not do something it's supposed to do with what folate, whatever, you need this supplement, it helps. So apparently, if you do not have that problem, you probably don't want to take this supplement. Yeah, I'll, I remember, <laughs> I wish I had jumped more on that when you said you were going to take it because I remember I asked, I said, well, do you have the mutation? You said you, you didn't And I was know. like, no, no, well, no, I, I don't think I do, but. Yeah, so I'll I'll clarify for listeners a little bit because I know a little bit about this. So methylation involves – it's really complicated and there's like no easy definition when you Google it. But basically it involves your your body methylating. That doesn't explain what it is. It involves your – It's a process. It's a (laughs) – With the MTHFR mutation, it involves your body's ability to transform folic acid into – a form of folate which it can use and if people have certain mutations their body sort of struggles with making that that change and so they can often really benefit from methylated folate which is the folate already in that active form that the body can use so the body doesn't have to make the transition or the transformation itself um, so it can really benefit people i will say even if you do have the mutation i always suggest people to start really low dose because you don't know how much you actually need and like Jen said the side effects of too much can it can you can get over methylated so um it's not just straight up energy but kind of like a side effect of too much energy so you know insomnia and restlessness and all of those things yeah it was intense <laughs> so I was like you know is this the stress from this book thing going on or is it this but I really do think that it was the supplement making it much much worse and I guess that's a sign I I probably do not have that <laughs> that methylation problem so uh. I think that's really a good thing for listeners as well like you said just because something worked for somebody else does not mean it's gonna be the perfect thing for you right so just yeah 
with so many things. You really have to find what works for you rather than doing what worked for your sister or your cat. Or my friend, my friend who had the same issue and it helped her a lot. Well, did not help Jen. So <laughs> anyway, I think I do. I still think I have a hunch that my restless legs is when I have too much sugar in my eating window. And having too much sugar in your eating window is an easy, an easy fix. Just don't have as much sugar in your eating window. So so for listeners, I will put a link to – I wrote a blog post about the MTHFR mutation, so I'll put a link to that. And hopefully you hopefully you have a co- – well, hopefully you have a copy of Delay, Don't Deny, but hopefully you have a real copy, so – Exactly. Go check your copy and, we, and stay tuned. Well, don't worry about it now. Like I said, my hope is that Amazon will do the right thing and replace every fake copy with a real copy that everyone thought they were ordering and – um that's what I would like to have happen. So I'll keep you posted. You do not have to send me a message or an email and ask me if yours is real or not. Um, although if you have one italicized number in the table of contents, it's probably not real. But um, I will keep you all posted about what to do. So shall we jump into everything for today? Yes. And we have a question from listener Allison. And the subject is changes to how your body processes alcohol with IF. Allison says, hi, ladies. I love your podcast. It has really helped me learn about IF. I've been doing one meal a day for three weeks now and I'm loving it. Here's my question. Does alcohol get processed differently in your body once you're fat adapted through IF? My husband and I went out for drinks with friends and I feel like the alcohol affected me 10 times more than it typically does. I also noticed I had significant hangover symptoms that lasted two days, which is very atypical for my body. I definitely learned I need to be much more careful with alcohol in this lifestyle, but was hoping to get more of an understanding of the physiological changes that are happening as well. Thanks for everything and keep up the great work. All right, Melanie, since your book has wine in the title, I am going to make a prediction that you're going to be able to answer this question very, very well for Allison. Okie dokie. Well, Allison, thank you so much for your question. So a lot of things going on here. It's not so much that the alcohol itself is literally processed differently because there is a way the body processes alcohol. And I do I do go through the whole complicated science of that in my book. If you're interested, it's What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine. So that actual process is not changing. It's almost like with tolerance of anything um, or getting used to anything, depending on what your in taking on a daily basis, your body does become more adept at processing certain things. And this goes for food, this goes for alcohol, it goes for everything. It just upregulates the enzymes and the the um the parts of the body in a way that are necessary for processing that compound. So that's for an example, like with alcohol, when you when you have your first drink ever in your life, <laughs> you probably quote, felt it a lot more than later when you'd been drinking habitually and you feel like things don't, you know, hit you as much. Um, You're still processing it the same way. It's just the body's ability to process it and how you respond to it can change a little bit. Side note, I might have talked about this on the podcast before. Do you know, Jen, about the quote, or do you know when we started processing alcohol as a human species and why? I do not know that. Oh, and here's a funny story. Somebody said that they, um, their husband asked them a question the other day, 
And they said, I do not know that. And they said it was my voice in their head because apparently I say this a lot. No, I did not know that. Oh, that's so funny. (laughs) So no, I did not know that. That's funny. (laughs) Wow, that's how you know. There you go. Actually, somebody told me the other day that, what did they say? They said they were reading a book. I think maybe they were reading my book. In your your voice. Yeah, yeah, but they said it was annoying because they were reading it, but I talked slower. I talk slower than they read. There was a problem with reading it. Yeah, (laughs) that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. To answer the question, because there's always the argument, people will be like, is drinking, quote, paleo? You know, like, are we genetically adapted to drinking or whatever? So about 10 million years ago, there was a key genetic mutation that occurred in primates that allowed them to start processing alcohol. And they think that this happened because prior to that, the the monkeys, <laughs> for lack of a better word, um, I don't know if they were actually like, quote, monkeys like we have today, but um, they were living in the trees. So right. they were- The primates. Eating, you could just say primates. primates. Right. Yeah. I like saying monkeys though. But okay. The primates. <laughs> they were living in the trees, so they were eating fresh fruit, which is not fermented. But then when they switched to becoming a more ground-based- primate population they had to start eating fruit that had fallen off the trees that had fermented and was creating alcoholic fruit basically so that's when there was a genetic change to start processing alcohol so that's an example i mean that's not happening from intermittent fasting you're not making these genetic changes but um on a like a huge year year years and millions of years scale you can see this this change that happened where we became more efficient at processing alcohol. That's just a side note. Back to Allison's question. When you do do intermittent fasting, I think we do often find that alcohol hits us stronger. And there are a lot of reasons for that. I mean, obviously, if you're breaking your fast with alcohol, there's nothing to kind of buffer the processing. So it's going to hit you faster. It's going to your liver faster. You're going to feel it more intensely. Also compared to the fasted state, I just find you feel it more intensely. Kind of like when you first have food, when you open your window, there's more of like a sensory experience and you just, you feel it, (laughs) you feel it more. Um, And then also, so she doesn't say if she was eating, but that could definitely be a huge thing. Um, Breaking the fast with alcohol, you're probably definitely going to feel it, feel it more because you've been intermittent fasting your body has a probably cleared out a lot of toxins and has probably gotten better at detoxing. So that's another reason that you might have a felt the alcohol more and also had more hangover symptoms because your body, um, it's kind of like when you, when you change your eating, what you're eating to a cleaner diet, you start realizing how other foods make you feel. You can kind of like notice the, the things that are a problem for you more. So it just makes you more aware in a way. And I think that might be a reason that you experienced hangover symptoms. I would recommend, we talk a lot on this podcast about dry farm wines that we love. And so that is a company based out of Napa, but they go around um, Europe and they find all of the small little wineries that follow organic wine making practices. And all of their wines are low sugar, low alcohol free of toxins, free of mold and organic, which are, which is amazing. And so I really think <laughs> that could actually help because most people who, even people who don't drink often find that they can tolerate dry farm wines basically 
they can tolerate the drinks that are free of additives and pesticides and things that you wouldn't even know because a lot of commercial wines today do have a lot. Most of the commercial wines that you find in the store, especially in the U.S., have a lot of things added because if you'll notice, there aren't labels on wines at the store. So you don't realize that there's actually stuff added. It's not just fermented grape juice in that bottle. So if you go to ifpodcast.com slash episode 72, I'll put a link there to Dry Farm Wines. And if you use that link, you can actually get a free bottle for a penny with your subscription through us, um, which is pretty awesome. You can also just go to dryfarmwines.com slash ifpodcast. But if you also just want to see if that's a thing, you can also just go to like um, Trader Joe's has a lot of really nice cheap organic wines and things like that. Um, I'd really suggest trying the organic route and seeing if that makes a difference as far as the hangover symptoms go and everything like that. So Jen, what are your thoughts? I want to just say a quick thing about dry farm wines. You're right. I can tell a difference. Oh, really? I don't know why I act surprised, but yeah. <laughs> With dry farm wines, definitely. Yeah, now that I've started getting it again, I got it before, you know, right after we had them on the um, on the podcast, I had one shipment, but because I was not home during the day to receive them, I had to go pick them up because I was working. So I, I knew that when I stopped working and, well, when I was working from home, because I'm working really hard, <laughs> but I'm not going anywhere. I'm working at home. I can get a shipment now, but I knew I would be able to pick them back up. The reds such a difference. Mainly, I, I noticed the difference with the reds more than with the with the others. When I I drank a, um, a standard red that my husband bought, it was like a big box store kind of inexpensive bottle of red that he brought home. And it's one we've had many times before. And I felt from it. But I don't feel that way when I drink the reds from Dry Farm Wines. I really do notice a difference. And people don't even realize, but there's so much stuff added to yeah. those wines and most of the wines we had we had actually the, the the founder of dry farm wines on our on our podcast way back in the early days of our podcast i think he was was he our first guest maybe he might have been it was it was a while ago it wasn't too long it was maybe in the fall was it in the fall i was teaching it was while we were teaching but i mean while it was during the school year it was a while ago but um he talked about Listeners, if you're interested in in wine and what actually goes into the winemaking process as far as those additives and everything, if you want to be a little bit shocked, definitely I'll put a link to that episode with him because it was really, really interesting. He also talked a lot about um, like ketosis and wine. Right. It was an interesting episode. It was. And uh, people often wonder, they're like, you know, you're talking about dry farm wines. Are you getting it for free? No, I am buying it too. <laughs> I am a customer of dry farm wines. They're not free. Although if they would like to send me free wine, I would not be sad. We we, we pay for it. Although they, they did just because I have I've been working with them earlier because I was working with them on my blog, right? And they just sent me like a lot of wine. Well, that's awesome. Just I'm, for no reason. It made me really happy. <laughs> and there was a pretty little card. I was like, uh, this is so nice. That is nice. I will always accept free wine, especially if it's like organic. It's wine I can actually drink. Too. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Exactly. Well, Jen is buying hers, but it's it really is good. So, <laughs> oh, I, I mean, yeah. I, I buy mine too. But this was just on top of that. That was great. But yeah, when we talk about things on the on the podcast that we like, we really do like them. We're not just like hucksters trying to get you to buy this wine. We like this wine. <laughs> yeah. Same with sponsors and stuff. Right. It's it's mostly like us going like being like what products do we use and what products do we want to recommend and then going to that company and saying hey 
like this is what we want to recommend to right to listeners we so. turn we turn down a lot of sponsors that are just not a good fit for like us really recently there's a sponsor that was not a fit not a fit it, it just it just didn't make sense right um but i <laughs> i made a suggestion um about a version of their product they can make that if they ever make it then it will be a good fit yeah I did. I had one thing I wanted to add about the alcohol story. There, that is it about the famous bourbon incident. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. I mean, that was not the first. That this is, you know, this this was. I was already at my goal weight. This is, you know, a long way in the process. This was right before I released Delay Don't Deny. In fact, I was writing it at the time, so the story made it in just barely because I was almost done. But I went to a party in the fall when I was working on Delay Don't Deny, and. um my, I had not eaten before the party, so I decided to open my window at the party. And I kind of nibbled a little bit here and there, but I'm a very social person. I did a lot of talking. And then at one point, someone was pouring me bourbon and Coke. Or <laughs> oh, my gosh. It hit me like nothing else. And so I learned a very important lesson that day about eating and drinking, and I will never drink bourbon again. And that is true. You know what else this reminds me of? What? This is a recent thing for me. You know, when we first started the podcast, I was basically doing lots of wine, cucumber, meats, and fruits. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what I liked. That's what I ate. <laughs> right. So I've gone through a lot of transitions since then. And my doctor, a few months ago, she was like, I think you have candida, like the, um, which is actually related to a question coming up if we get to it. <laughs> she told me to cut out all fruits, basically. And so I cut it all, all fruit out for about a few months and also started taking nice statin, which is an antifungal. And now I don't even really, not that I was like craving fruit and wine, but I don't. That is so interesting. I don't like want fruit and you, wine. You were feeding the candida. The candida was well, craving no, it, right? No, You don't I, think no, so? No, no, no. I, I, I. Not not like when we first started. I don't think I was. Okay. Because I didn't have any of the signs of. Okay. All of this started when I got the heavy metal toxicity. Okay. I'll talk a little bit about candida and heavy metals when we get to the question. But it goes to what I was saying about how your body upregulates certain enzymes, you know, and you get used to processing certain types of energy and nutrients and things like that. So I think before I was processing like fructose and – um alcohol and protein and those certain substrates and after cutting it all out like now I really I crave like protein and fat I don't even like crave fruit and alcohol but I don't like it I like I feel better when I'm eating more fruit right like I prefer the other way and I keep trying to like go back to that but then I'm like I don't like I, I got so excited my my doctor's like you can have pineapple again and I was so excited and I like bought all the pineapple and I was like tonight I'm eating pineapple this is gonna be so great and then I was like ready, and then it got time for the pineapple, and I was not in the mood for pineapple. I don't want the pineapple. Oh, that's funny and sad. But I might try to get myself to go back there. Have Have you read the study where they um looked at people who had historically been eating a low carb diet, and they put them on a low fat diet, and then people who have been eating a low fat diet, and they put them on a low carb diet for a, like a week? I haven't seen that. That sounds very interesting, though. So they did that. They made that switch, and they even had like one person who had been because it was a smaller study but they even had one person who had been a vegan for like their whole life or a vegetarian and put them on a meat diet within four days their gut had changed 
their gut bacteria populations had changed to process that new diet. Yeah, I think you have mentioned that. That sounds familiar. Yeah. So four days. So I guess that's what it takes. There you go. Eat free for four days. <laughs> I know. But now I like don't even want it. Yeah. Oh, well. So many tangents. So the next question comes from Natalie. The subject is fluctuating weight. And Natalie says, hello, Jen and Melanie. I've been IF for almost six months. I love it and even started my own Facebook group and I'm up to 40 members of my close friends and family. Some have had great success and have joined Jen's groups too. All because of you two and your inspiration. And then she puts little hearts. I like when people put emojis in, in their emails. I'm on Jen's second book now. Your second book hasn't been pirated, has it, Jen? No, I don't think it's selling enough. I mean, it's it sells fine. It's not like not selling. But I, I think that Delay Don't Deny was a target because it was selling so well. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. So Natalie says she's on Jen's second book now and looking forward to Melanie's when it comes out. This is an old email <laughs> in case you can't tell. So here's my question and concern. I do not have a lot to lose, maybe 10 or 13 pounds, and I lost six pounds in the beginning and felt my clothes fitting better and my waist was really shrinking. But in the last two weeks, my jeans began feeling snug and my waist seemed to be getting back to how it was before I started. I've gained five pounds back. I average a four-hour eating window and was following a low-carb lifestyle, but lately have slacked on my eating. But when I do eat sugar or foods that aren't the best, I always shorten my window to two hours to try to compensate for the bad food choices. I don't eat bad every day, but it seems to be affecting my weight even though I am strict with my eating window and I clean fast for 19 to 22 hours a day with black coffee and water only. Help me. I love this way of eating and need to know what to do. So, Jen, what should Natalie do? Well, this is this is a great question. And... um. When I look at it, I zero in on the fact that she was doing a low-carb lifestyle and then has, she called it slacking on her eating, but it seems like she's added back in sugar and foods that she says are not the best. So I'm not really sure. Um, Maybe that's junk food. I don't know. But um, it's definitely not what she was eating before. And her weight has fluctuated, she said, five pounds. So what I knew when I was doing low carb. I tried low carb. It didn't work for my body. Of course, like I said, that doesn't mean it doesn't work for other people's bodies. Maybe low carb is what works best for Natalie's body. But when I would try a low carb plan and I cycled on and off of them for years and years and years when I was caught up in the diet madness, they never worked for me ever. I don't know why I kept going back to them, but I was like, this is the time. It's going to work. I'm going to do it. It's going to work. Never did. Anyway, whenever I would start a low carb plan, I would immediately lose you know, what I think is four pounds of water weight. And then when I would stop, immediately those four pounds would come back. So I think the first four pounds you lose on low carb and the first four pounds you gain back after introducing carbs really have to do with the, the amount of, of water that your body retains to process the carbs. And also, you know, you're storing back some glycogen that also requires some water um, going on. So I don't really know. Natalie, that that's five pounds of fat. It could be four pounds of of the water that comes along with carbs to me. Um, If you are interested in figuring out what your weight is doing over time, I've said this before and it's also in Delay, Don't Deny. I really recommend weighing daily and then once a week take your – take your last seven weights and find the average of them. Then you can see over time what your trends are. You know, sometimes people only weigh once a week or they might only weigh once a month, 
or they might only weigh sporadically with no random, you know, no pattern, just randomly weighing. And the problem with that is I know my, when I was weighing, my weight could fluctuate a great deal hormonally or if I had just been out to eat or if I'd have had a lot of salt in my meal. You know, one time I went out of town for a girl's weekend and I came back and the next day on Monday, I weighed nine pounds more than I had on Friday morning. Nine pounds. Did I gain nine pounds of fat over that weekend? No. And it was just my weight was up from what I had done that weekend. Of course, all those nine pounds were gone by the next weekend because it wasn't fat. So you really have to be sure if you are gaining weight while doing intermittent fasting, be certain that you really are gaining weight because that's what your trend is saying. That is what your weekly average is telling you. You know, if I had not weighed in a while and I just got on the scale and saw I was nine pounds up, I'd be like, oh my gosh, I've gained nine pounds. But that's not really what had happened. I didn't really gain nine pounds of fat. So really figure out what your overall trend is doing. And then you're going to have to tweak, you know, the foods that are, are working for you or not working for you. Because I noticed Natalie said her strategy is when she felt like she was eating food that was, quote, in her words, bad, she would shorten her window to go with that. But if it's a food your body reacts negatively to, having a shorter window is not necessarily going to make up for that. You know, your body's not doing well with that food. So it it, it can take a long time to figure out what foods work best for you. And the weighing daily can help you do that. Again, though, just because you have carbs and your weight pops up, that doesn't mean, oh, my gosh, my body bloats up when I have carbs. I can't eat carbs. That's just what happens with the water. That's a normal and expected thing. You know, my body body, my body my does great with carbs, but if I eliminated carbs for a week and weighed myself and then I had a carb-heavy meal, I would feel puffy. And it would be because the water rushing in, you know, to handle all those carbs, and I would think, oh, look, this proves carbs don't work well for me. And really, that's just what happens when you avoid them for a while and then add them back. Here comes the water. You feel puffy. You feel feel weird. So, um, Natalie, I want you know consider keeping a food diary to figure out what foods might make you feel worse the next day, and really think about how you feel and what foods are working, and and track that weekly average and see how that goes. Yeah, I really like everything that you said, Jen, and. Looking at everything that you're saying, Natalie, I do think it's definitely a food thing here rather than a fasting thing. And I like what Jen said about looking for the patterns, but I, I think I think you do feel like you know what the pattern is um, just because you seem to be losing and feeling better with the lower carb and then you started adding these quote, like Jen said, quote, bad foods. Um I like everything that Jen said, so I say go with that. And then I just also want to focus in a little bit on the mindset aspect of it. Regardless of how the foods are affecting you, you've definitely really attached a morality clause in a way to your food. Um, So when you do eat these foods that you think aren't working for you, whether or not they are, um, you see them as bad. And I imagine while you're eating them, you're probably judging them as bad. And then you feel the need afterwards to make up for them and atone because they were bad. So I would really just encourage you to try to not have that mindset just because the negativity and the morality and the judgment doesn't really help anything (laughs) regardless of how the food is affecting you. That's why I talk a lot about that, that book, The Yoga of Eating, which I will put a link to and like 
and I've said this before in the podcast, but something that he says is even if you do make a decision to have a food that is, quote, bad or that you think won't be good for you, once you do make that decision, just let that be okay. Like let everything, like try to make, try to eat the foods that your body wants that are nourishing, that will move you towards a healthy state. And the more that you become in tune with your body, the easier that should become. But regardless of what you do or do not eat, be okay with it. And don't feel the need to compensate, but rather you can just learn from it. And because something he talked about is he said, sometimes we weasel our way into a hole and we actually make things worse because we'll be eating something that we think is bad and but then we think oh it's okay because I'll just make up for it tomorrow we start eating foods and we start creating habits that whether or not they're good or bad subconsciously or consciously we think are bad so there's this whole guilt aspect and there's this whole negativity surrounding the food but then we write it off and we justify it because we say oh it's fine I'll just make up for it tomorrow which is a dangerous habit to fall into when instead you can just try to make good food choices and if you do eat something that you feel bad about just eat it but don't feel like you have to like judge yourself for it or compensate for it or atone for it instead just think you can always go up from here things can always be better so I'll just throw that throw in that little caveat But I'm sure that you'll find what works for you. And you might have already because this was a while ago. (laughs) So feel free to uh, give us an update if you like. I think that sounds great. That was a great thing to add. All right. Now we're ready to do the the three candida questions. Shall Shall I read them now? We're ready? All right. First, we have Lauren. And the subject is candida. And she says, hi, ladies. Thanks so much for the amazing podcast. I've been binge listening and am really learning so much. In your reading and research, have you come across any info on how IF may impact candida? I have an intestinal overgrowth and have been struggling to get it under control. I've been getting my feet wet with IF, but am hesitant to go full steam ahead because I've read that candida can feed off of ketones in addition to glucose, which is what is more commonly known, thoughts. Then we have listener Shauna, subject candida. I seem to be having an overgrowth of candida and I'm looking to kill it off naturally. I know cutting out foods that feed the candida will help, but I don't want to greatly alter my diet if I don't have to. I've been doing IF for about a month now, and I'm hoping this way of eating will help. I've also read that essential oils can help too. I was thinking of putting essential oil drops with a carrier oil into a capsule to ingest the oil, probably thyme, lemongrass, or clove, as I've read these all work. When would be the best time to take those oils internally? Since they are an oil and a very small amount, would it be okay to take while fasting? I think maybe they could work better on an empty stomach, but I don't know, and I can't find anything to back this up or disprove it. Thanks for your help, and I love your podcast. And then the third one was Kathy, subject yeast overgrowth. Can this way of eating clear up this problem? Thanks, Kathy. Okie dokie. Candida. Oh, Candida, I know you well. So first of all, so what is candida? It is a type of yeast slash fungus, and we have it naturally in our bodies. Did you know, Jen, that it only exists within the human GI tract? It doesn't exist outside. Anywhere else? I did not know that. (laughs) 
I didn't. No, I did not know that. Only humans, huh? Well, I don't know. Right. My, I don't know if it's in other animals, but it's not outside of like. Okay, it's not like lying right. over there on the table. Exactly. Right. <laughs> hope not. All right. I hope not too. <laughs> it sounds like it would be so pretty, though, Candida. It sounds lovely. Yeah, unlike the word fungus, which does right. not sound pretty. Um, no. But it's a very interesting organism. So we do naturally have it. It's not necessarily a bad thing. We do need it oftentimes, but it can exist in different forms. So the way we want it to exist in our body is as its natural, well, its original yeast state. But when it becomes pathogenic or when it starts to grow too much and become a problem, it can actually, it becomes an actual fungus, which is a transition that occurs. And it can also become systemic and enter the bloodstream. Um, But candida infections that people often experience, so people can have like oral versions of it. That's where you'll get thrush. So you'll get like the white tongue. A lot of women get vaginal infections, which they might be familiar with, yeast infections. And then also, like I said, there is the systemic version, and that's when it actually enters your bloodstream. And that actually that actually accounts for tons of deaths um, in hospitals from people actually die from systemic candida infections. Really? Mm-hmm. I had no idea. That's shocking. Oftentimes after um, having tons of antibiotics, ah, like in, the, in a hospital situation, and then the candida takes over and becomes systemic. Yeah, I was pretty shocked that that was actually like a cause of death. So symptoms of having a candida overgrowth are, it can manifest a lot of different ways. So brain fog, fatigue, um, body odor, insomnia, itching is a really common thing. Sugar cravings is a pretty telling thing. Also like skin issues and rashes and things like that. And body aches, doesn't it cause body aches? Yeah, it can really cause like so many things. And it is often a problem after courses of antibiotics because it can, um, when you wipe out everything down there, the candida can can flourish. And because they are not wiped out by antibiotics, that's why they're even more likely to overgrow after a, uh, after a course of antibiotics. Another reason I said earlier I was going to speak about heavy metals. So I recently got diagnosed with heavy metal mercury toxicity, which Side note, I did my first IV chelation thing where you basically get an IV-infused compound that will pull out the metals, and then you do a urine test to see how many you excreted. And I told Jen this, but my mercury, (laughs) it's supposed to be like four, and mine was 140, which is just insane, insane. So I'm full of mercury. But regardless, I think that actually led to my personal candida flare-up because Jen, did you know <laughs> that candida um, can feed off of heavy metals? So when you have... No, I did not know that. And that sounds weird. <laughs> I would never have thought that they would eat like or feed off of metals. Like they're they're eating them, feed off, that kind of feeding off. Mm-hmm. And they use them in their biofilms. And so a proposed mechanism for why the body, quote, lets candida thrive if you're, oh, it was – was it trying to eat up your yeah, – it was like doing it on purpose like, to try to help you? Yeah. Well, the candida is not trying to help you. It's just eating. But your body let it, so it would help you. Mm-hmm, but your body lets the candida survive because it will be eating the toxic metals, which in the grand scheme of things, the metals are worse than candida. 
So our bodies are kind of smart. Pretty smart, yeah. So that's a, a big reason that people can often have um, candida problems that go in line with like metal toxicity or other problems, which has been my life sort of recently. Anyways, back to how to treat it and all the things and all the stuff like that. So there is a huge debate, huge debate about the best diet to tackle candida because the go-to idea, the main idea people think is you cut out the sugar because that's the main thing they feed on. So it's like, you know, no fruit, nothing sweet, eat, you know, low carb might be better, basically starve them. Um, then on the flip side, there are the people who say no, actually going super low carb and starving them just makes them go into hibernation and it'll just be worse and that it'll, it'll just come back once you start eating carbs again and that that doesn't really address anything. Then like Lauren has said, some people say that candida can feed off of ketones. I have also heard this um, quite often. I haven't found any research to support it, but people do say that. But I haven't found any research. I've got I've got something you're gonna love. Oh, then. you do. Oh, I'm excited. Yeah. Ooh, pumped. Okay. okay. Regardless, I think the key is, I do think the key is not feeding them. I mean, if you're just feeding them, that's not gonna help. But I think it goes more down to creating a digestive state that doesn't feed them, if that makes sense. Because what candida feeds on, they like feeding on. Like when you have a lot of, when you're not digesting things well and food is stagnating, that's when food is fermenting and that's when candida can just thrive. So I think a lot of people could benefit from example, cutting out fruit, you know, because the candida would eat the fruit, but there's a big difference between eating like a piece of fruit with all of its vitamins and nutrients on an empty stomach when your body's going to process it pretty quickly versus eating a big meal that has lots of fruit with it. That's a very different situation. So I would just encourage people to cut down on the sugar. Definitely cut down. Definitely if you're trying to beat candida, cut down on the processed foods and the things like that. Um, probably cut down on the high sugar fruits, at least in the beginning. If you're going to have fruit, maybe going like, um, well, lemons and limes are okay. Cranberries, maybe some other berries. Try to gravitate towards whole foods though. You could also integrate foods that are natural antifungals. So like rutabaga is a natural antifungal. Um, Caprylic acid, which is found in like coconut oil, that's a great antifungal. And then cooking with a lot of spices are really good for combating candida. So using a lot of garlic, clove, things like that. You could use anti-candida supplements or you could take like Pal de Arco, which is a tea um, that you can make. And that's very anti-candida-ish. <laughs> you can also supplement with Saccharomyces boulardii. That is actually a yeast itself, but it, it it will compete with candida and it can actually reduce the forms of like the pathogenic candida. So that's a yeast that you can take that can kind of correct that balance and then also using probiotic foods as well. Um, so I think really just finding the diet that digests well for you, that works well for you, that doesn't create symptoms. Of course, then there's the whole thing about how you get die off symptoms. If you start attacking the candida and you don't know if this is a whole thing with like honey and this is something I just, I don't do honey that much, but there's the whole debate about like Manuka honey. It's a super potent antifungal um, in lab studies in vitro where they basically take, 
you know, candida and slather it in Manuka honey, it'll kill the candida. But it, does that work the same in the body? It's hard to tell. And then if you go and eat a jar of Manuka honey, you might get crazy itchy and feel terrible, but you don't know if it's because you fed the candida or because it's die off. This is like these, the story of my life. <laughs> when, I, when I research, I'm like, is it die off or is it a hurt? Is it a die off or is it feeding? It's so hard to tell. So that's why I say um, just favor whole foods that aren't really feeding the candida while also supplementing with things that you do know will kill the candida. You also can take Nystatin. I don't normally recommend prescription type drugs ever, as most people know. However, Nystatin is a prescription antifungal and it just stays in the GI tract. It does not enter the bloodstream. And um, from the research that I've done, I don't really see any negative side effects from it. I actually feel okay saying if, you know, if your doctor wants to give you a prescription for Nystatin, that might be something you'd like to try. Oh, this is just a random scary fact that I wrote down. There's a mortality rate of 40% reported for patients who get systemic can, like systemic can candida, like when it does enter wow. the bloodstream. Mm. Uh, scary. That's awful. And then I will say, so the essential oils, I'm actually going to table an intense discussion of essential oils for a later podcast, maybe next episode. Because I've personally been experimenting hardcore with essential oils. A few listeners have sent me oils. And I'm becoming obsessed and I want to talk about it. And I've been reading about it and researching, but it's kind of like there's a lot to take in. So um, I'm going to table the essential oil conversation. But I will say that some particularly beneficial essential oils for candida are tea tree oil, lavender, lemon, germanium, clove. Those are all very potent. And I'm becoming increasingly obsessed with the concept of essential oils. I was never an essential oil person until I started researching. And it's kind of crazy because it's basically the um, the concentrated compounds and plants put right. into an oil. Like this stuff is real. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's we, we know that plant, plant compounds are powerful. Yeah. And it's like the concentrated version right. of it. And it can really get into your system. So I will table that. I will say, Shauna, so yes, I think oils could be great for helping with the candida, but I would really encourage you to, the more I research, I realize it needs to be really pure, good brands and you, and you shouldn't just be like willy nilly, I'm going to take this oil. That, That could be bad. You have to be careful because it's so powerful and you could really hurt yourself. You could damage your you could damage your digestive tract. It could, people have burns from from oils. So this is not something to just start experimenting with and going crazy with. I mean, even people putting them on their skin have had like burns from them. So yeah. So I would I would recommend Shauna and anybody else interested. I'm currently reading a book, and I'll put a link to this in the show notes. But it, it is the healing power of essential oils. It's by Eric. Zelinsky, I think is his name. So I would really recommend that you check that out. It has all the information there about the oils. Um, and the one more supplement I do recommend is um, biocidin. And it's kind of becoming really well known in the, the gut dysbiosis world, but it's like, it's, an, it's a really nice blend and a lot of people don't really react negatively to it. And um, it's great. It's an, anti-candida, anti 
bad bacteria. It's like, it's all the good compounds that you need to support a healthy GI state. So that's something you might want to try as well. It's also anti-Lyme disease, um, which that's a whole other story. So, so yeah, that's all the, all the stuff. Oh, and then one last thing is, um, Candida, they're smart. It's good at adapting to antifungals and it's good at hiding in like biofilms which is like a sticky matrix type thing that it hides behind. So A, just straight up starving it in the long run might not work. B, just hitting it with one type of compound might not work. And C, kind of hide behind this biofilm. So I'd also recommend supplementing with proteolytic enzymes during the fast. So serapeptase or other proteolytic enzyme blends and um, rotating your antifungals. So we'll put, I'll put links to all the things that I like on ifpodcast.com slash episode 72 and also ifpodcast.com slash stuff we like. Now, I noticed you didn't mention anything about fasting in Candida. Oh. I was not able to find <laughs> anything about about that. Were you? I totally forgot. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I would just say as far as fasting goes, I didn't find any intense studies about it. I do think that while fasting, th- there's two sides to the coin. On the one hand... I, like I said, the candida, they're pretty smart and they're pretty good at hiding. So while you're fasting, they might just... Hanging around. They're just hanging out there. Kind of go into hiding. So it might not really affect them. But then again, fasting is great for detox and it is great for just health in general and letting your body tackle things. So I don't think it can hurt. Right. It's not going to hurt it, but it's probably not going to cure it. Like Shauna said, she didn't want to greatly alter her diet if she doesn't have to. It depends what you're eating, Shauna, but... If you're eating a diet that's feeding candida, you're going to have to change the diet. What you're eating, yeah. So, I mean, this is normally, I feel like with a lot of our stuff, it's focusing more on the fasting. But when it comes to this, I think you really have to address what you're eating and make it work for you and against the candida. And then have the intermittent fasting supplement your, your overall health and your overall detox. So Kathy had asked if her her question was very simple. Could this way of eating clean up this problem? And I think that we, we've determined probably the answer to that is no. So I do have something about the ketones and the candida. And it's really technical. <laughs> and it's it's a conversation between two different doctors. One is, I, I, don't, I don't know if one's an MD and one's a PhD, but they both are, are PhD, MD type doctors. Um, and there'll be a link to this in the show notes. And it's a um, it's a discussion that is on the website of someone, Doctor Norman Robillard. I'm not sure how to say his last name. Yeah, he um, he's the creator of the Fast Track Diet. Right, Doctor Robillard of the Fast Track Diet has a website, and um, so he's talking about the the whole question about ketones and do ketones feed candida? Because his book, The Fast Track Diet, is about um dealing with these things through your diet and what to eat, that sort of thing. And so he says, no, I don't, I don't think the ketones are going to be a problem. So then there's a, um, a doctor, Paul Jaminet. Paul Jaminet. He is the perfect health diet. Jaminet. I knew I was saying it wrong. He thinks that ketones, I think that that's where it started. He's the one who thinks that right. ketones feed candida. Right. So they have a conversation, and it's a back and forth. And Jamine, I knew I was saying it wrong, but these are these are things I've read and not heard because you know I don't listen to podcasts. <laughs> I'm a, I get my information by reading it. So if if I don't hear anybody say it, I don't know how to say it. 
anyway, he provides some links in this conversation. You have to scroll down to get to it. But Jaminet provides some science. He says backs up the, the ketone question. And then Robillard says why he thinks that's not true. And so, again, these are two people that are very educated debating it. So I think that if they're debating it and they're not, like, agreeing that it's a very complicated issue. But if you're interested in it, read what they say, and then maybe you could decide what you think about it. But after examining the evidence, Robillard said, and I'm this is a quote, I am not convinced of Candida's ability to use ketones efficiently for fuel in the GI tract. And that's his whole point, I believe, is that we're talking about something happening in the GI tract. So even if they can use them, that that's not the, – the body is different than, you know, certain – if it's not in the actual GI tract, we don't know what's ha- – anyway, the whole yeah, debate's at that length. I think – I do think that to, from everything I've seen that the popular idea that candida might feed off of ketones seems to have originated popularly with Paul Geminet, um, because he always maintains that he went super low carb and got scurvy and also got an intense candida, candida overgrowth from it and that's why he created the perfect health diet. But then beyond what he said, I am beyond what all the interwebs people talk about. I don't, I just, I haven't seen any research to back that up. I mean, it might be true. I'm really excited. I'm going to read, I think I've read what you just talked about, but it's been a while. So for, so for listeners, you can read that through and come to your own conclusions. I think, exactly. in, the, I think in the end, we, we are intuitive and our bodies are intuitive. And I think you can know in a way if a diet is, if a certain food paradigm that you're following is benefiting the candida or not. Like you should be able to tell. You know, if you follow it like long enough, consistently enough, you'll be able to see if symptoms get worse or better over a longer span of things, regardless of any blips along the way, you know, diet reactions, things like that. So... I, I personally think the best way to go is focusing on whole foods, those foods that do kill candida, those herbs, those supplements. Is oil of oregano one of those? Oregano would be a good one. Yeah. Okie dokie. This was a good episode. It was. It was. A lot of drama from the beginning with my... <laughs> All righty. So a few things for listeners before we go. So if you'd like to submit your own questions for the podcast, you can directly email us at questions at ifpodcast.com. You can also go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. Also on that website, you can get on our email list and you will get updates about the podcast. You can also subscribe to our podcast in iTunes and then you'll get the episodes downloaded each and every week automatically. And if you're on iTunes and you have a moment to write a brief review, that would be super duper appreciated. Also, it would be super appreciated if you'd like to write a review on Amazon of any of our books, the real books, not the fake books. (laughs) Um, So that would be super amazing. You can also help support our podcast at patreon.com slash ifpodcast. That would just absolutely mean the world. For show notes for this episode, you can go to ifpodcast.com slash episode 72. That's where I'll put links to all these supplements, all the books, all the things, Speaking of all the things, if you go to ifpodcast.com slash stuff we like, that is the Bible page for all the things. We, we keep everything there, um, a running log of everything. So definitely check out that as well. You can also follow us on Instagram. Our handle is ifpodcast. 
And you can follow us on Twitter. We are the IF Pod. And oh, before we go, Jen, I just remembered. So I'm may or may not be recording the audiobook version soon with another narrator, maybe. And um, the narrate I might or might not have been talking to the narrator on the phone yesterday, and she might or might not have said that there was a major typo that she had a question about on page 82. So listeners, if you have my book and you go to page 82 <laughs> and it says, um, I wrote that 100 grams of glucose yields around 8.7 kilograms of ATP and 100 grams of ketones creates around 10.5, I said grams of ATP instead of kilograms. So that's a big difference. Yeah. <laughs> I just want a thousand times different. No big deal. Yeah. Yeah, it's fine. No big deal. I, I emailed my <laughs> my publisher, so I'm curious to see if she says, I don't know how it goes about, like how often they fix it, you know? Yeah, I think that if it's in a book like, I mean, like, I think it's there. <laughs> I don't know. But I mean, like, I wonder if they update the file for like the next round of printing. Yeah. It's stressful. That's a good question. I don't know. Probably so. Um, yeah. Their typos and delay don't deny that I did make. Like somebody was like, I found a typo in the fake one. You actually, it says eating widow instead of eating window. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe they made that mistake. And then I looked in the real delay don't deny. I'm like, oh no, that was, that was mine. So you could have your eating, eating widow. <laughs> I will say the narrator that I might or might not have been speaking to, she's a pretty big narrator. And um, she said, she so she she full time narrates audiobooks and she says there's always a typo. I'm glad to hear it. It makes me feel better. She said maybe like once in the like 300 plus books she's narrated and these are like pu- professionally published, maybe once there wasn't a typo. She said it. She said it like wasn't even a thing. She's like normally we just don't even ask about the typo because we know what it's supposed to say. But like for this one, she asked because. Yeah. yeah, she wanted to make sure. But yeah, it, it feels bad though to have a typo. It feels awful because, but it really is true. And I taught my students this, you know, when I taught my elementary kids to work with someone else to, um, to, ha- to edit their work because you cannot find your own typos because your brain substitutes what you meant. That's why they say if you really want to edit something, you should read it backwards. Oh, that's interesting. So you read... Not not the words backwards, but the sentences backwards. Like you read it, you know, does that make sense? Yeah. I I tried to do that once and, I, and it took way too long. I was like, no. I wouldn't be able to have the patience. But, but, but then but. your brain has no context for each sentence. Yeah. So it has to look at the whole sentence. Oh, can I tell you one more fact I learned about sentences? Yeah. Did you know every time you say a sentence that is 20 words, it's probably never been said before? What? No. Yes. That sounds made up. <laughs> yeah, I was reading my Mensa magazine last night, which I just got because I had to do a game show one time and you had to be Mensa for it. That's why I joined, but I the magazine is ep- the magazine is epic. By the way, I was in Mensa and I quit. Oh yeah, we that was like yeah. one of our first conversations. Yeah, yeah. I dropped out. Their magazine is worth it. You should rejoin. I used to get it. No, I didn't like – the reason I quit is because the magazine got on my nerves. Sorry. Sorry, Mensa. Oh, I love the magazine. No. I love the magazine. No, no, it's like it, the best magazine ever. It got on my nerves. And I'm like, are they kidding? Is this real? So no, I, I love There was some article magazine. that was ridiculous. And so I couldn't – I was like, I can't read this anymore. This should is- write in. Well, you can't now. <laughs> I could rejoin if I wanted to. You could have. 
They said they're going to publish something, I a comment I wrote in, actually about wine oh, okay. next issue. We'll see. Wait, but yeah, it said, just to end things, it said... So she's reading, you're reading the Mensa Bulletin, correct? I am. That's the name of it. This is the August <laughs> edition. It said a few quick things. It said, um, they did a study where they had 25 people look at a cartoon and construct a sentence to describe it. And it, apparently it was like a picture of a bear by a phone booth or something. I don't know. So obviously all 25 people came up with different sentences, right? Like none of the sentences were the same. And then they had a computer try to create its own sentence just from the raw materials that those readers had come up with. So then they're like, computer, how many sentences can you make with these words about this picture based on what the other people had said? And the computer... Sorry, I'm not sure. <laughs> that, was, that was Alexa. That was my computer. <laughs> okay. Um, how many sentences do you think the the computer came up with? I don't know, a trillion? 19.8 billion. Okay, see, my guess was way too high. I knew it would be high. And other studies have shown, I'm reading now, that it would take 10 trillion years to utter all the possible English sentences that use exactly 20 words. Therefore, it is highly unlikely that any 20-word sentence an individual speaks has ever been spoken previously. Wow. That's fascinating. Um, with the exception of, like, phrases like, how are you? But that's not 20 words. Fascinating. Fun times on the intermittent fasting podcast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I will talk to you All right. Week. Well, I look forward to it, and I will keep you updated in the saga of Jen's book. Dun, dun, dun. Please, please do. Stay tuned. I really felt like I was in an episode of like 2020 or something because I was like investigating and I would get a clue and I'm like, <gasps> what? Yeah. That's like that's like your life now, I feel. Investigating my book or just <laughs> in general? Like just crazy things oh, happening yeah. with Yeah. It's it book. I guess that's what I guess that's what happens when you write like a book. Yeah. 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 When you're a writer, your problems involve books. <laughs> and, and words. words and typos and yeah. And pirates. Pirates. Ahoy mateys. Indeed. There you go. I will talk to you next All week. right. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember, the opinions we discussed on this show do not constitute medical advice. We're not doctors. Check out ifpodcast.com for more information on us. Theme music was composed by Leland Cox. See you next week.